0: I'm very happy to welcome you all here today to our August John Cain lunch, which is a week later than usual due to uh, ALP National Conference last week, uh, which some of us had to go to uh, <laughs> um, for our sins. Um, I would like to start, of course, by acknowledging that we meet on the lands of the Wandering people of the Kulin Nation and pay my respects to their elders past and present. We meet today on Aboriginal lands which were never ceded, and I thank them for their many centuries of custodianship of those lands. Um, lovely to see you all here today for this regular catch-up with friends and fellow travellers. Um, I'm delighted today, this is a per capita and Centre for Equitable Housing per capita event, of course, for this uh, month's John Kane lunch. Um, And I'm very delighted that our speaker today is my friend Peter Khalil. I was just asked what Peter's background was, and I said, well, about 25 years ago, he and I worked together in a small office in the city um, in the film sector. But we both made better choices after that, I think. (laughs) Um, And Peter, of course, has gone on to have a most illustrious career, both here and internationally. Uh, in the fields of international security, Uh, he's now the member for wills in the Labor government and making a great contribution there, but he grew up in public housing and he's here today to talk to you about housing and its important place in our society. Uh, It's obviously the subject of some pretty heated political debate, so it'll be good to hear from someone that has lived experience of being in the social housing system Uh, and
1: has quite some influence in our national corpus when it comes to these issues. So please make Peter Khalil very welcome. Thanks, Em. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Emma, so much for the film industry. Um, I don't know if I should tell this story, but I remember in that job, I got the Peter Jackson script for Lord of the Rings, and I said to my boss, because I read Tolkien, I said, we've got to fund this and he had no idea about it at all, and uh, anyway, I could have been on a yacht in the Mediterranean if we'd funded that film, but anyway, I got into politics instead, so even better. Um, I do want to thank you and Per Capita for hosting this event today, and and all your wonderful team, Meredith, uh, Rebecca, and Sam, who's apparently gonna study data analytics post-grad, is that right, Sam, yeah? So we'll find out all the stats from him if you need. Um, But Per Capita is a wonderful think tank and and this great initiative of the um, Centre for Equitable Housing is also great uh, given how important housing is as an issue. I too want to acknowledge the traditional owners of land and pay my respects to um, elders past and present. And, you know, we're talking about housing today and this is a critical policy area. We've got a seminal moment um, with the referendum coming up uh, in this country. It's a moment, uh, it's a crossroads really for this nation, a decision that is being put before the people of Australia about which direction we take as a nation. Um, And it goes to the heart of uh, policy because recognition of First Nations people in our constitution and a voice to parliament will allow Indigenous Australians to make that contribution to housing policy that affects Indigenous Australians. And that's the value of it. And we've got this choice that we we have before us. I'm obviously uh, campaigning for the yes vote and have been for a while, Um, but I encourage all of you to be involved over the next six to eight weeks as the campaign unfolds. I think the PM's going to announce it uh, this week, um, probably the 14th of October. You didn't hear it from me. Um, this campaign is going to be critical, um, and it's going to be one at the grassroots. It's going to be one by people like you here today talking to your work colleagues, your friends, your neighbours, your family about this issue, and cutting through the disinformation, the misinformation, the disingenuous and... frankly, rabid uh, approach by Elements of the No campaign, cut through that with the truth about what this means for Indigenous Australians and for Australia. Uh, And you have that responsibility. We all have that responsibility to engage, I think, on this issue of of such import. Um, Because housing is one of those critical issues. And it's one of those public policy areas that beats with a deeply personal heart. Um, After all, what is more evocatively personal than our dwelling, our home, uh, the roof over our heads. Um, When I was a kid, we moved around a bit. Um, We spent a big chunk of time in a Housing Commission flat, um, and I remember every house or apartment that we'd lived in. I certainly remember the Housing Commission flat. It was, I remember it being a little bit rough, obviously, but I also uh, now feel very fortunate um, that Labor government's provided my migrant family with that first all-important place to call home. Without access to public housing, I wouldn't be here where I am today. Um, and it's been for me a fortunate journey, from house to renter to homeowner, born of educational opportunities that flow for migrants and their children when governments, Labor governments, get housing policy right. And there are members here of Labor governments that I want to acknowledge because they've been part of that history throughout the 70s and 80s. The former Deputy Prime Minister, Brian Howe. Dennis um, Romanus, who was in the Victorian Parliament, David McKinsey, who was in the Whitlam Government. These people actually put these policies in place and implemented them so that we could have a future. And I want to acknowledge their work over the many years. Thank you. I'm also keenly aware that it was easier to make that journey of coming of age in the 1980s and the 1990s than it is today. Um, it's why we have to get this critical policy area right because it matters to all of us. Access to good housing is right there in Article 25 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It's that important. It's that fundamental. It's a no-brainer for the quintessential fair go, the baseline to enable all Australians to fulfil their potential. We need a roof over our heads to be able to engage in our community, to fully participate at school, to look for and get a job, to work, to, co- to con- contribute to the society that we live in. It is about dignity and opportunity. It gave my family security, the security to allow my sister and I to pursue our education and give back to the country that gave us so much. So this is the reality I want for all Australians. I also know this is the reality that the Prime Minister wants for all Australians because as well as it being personal for him, and it is, he also grew up in a housing commission um, flat, he also leads a Labor government. And Labor governments have always been committed to policies that support the Australian people access to public social and quality affordable housing is that support. Now we are products of public housing and of course that has its influence because housing and housing policy have shaped my life as it shapes the lives of my constituents in the electorate of wills. In fact, the issue of housing security is one that's raised frequently with me by many of my constituents in the electorate. Our community is made up of people from all walks of life, uh, eco, socio-economically and ethnically diverse population and community. Housing insecurity causes immense stress to people across that community. For the young family trying to manage alongside childcare fees, for the university student juggling study with part-time work, for the older Australians relying on their pension or superannuation, housing affordability and rental stress is an issue that cuts across my community. I've got a lot of examples of real cases of people that have come to my office seeking assistance. I'll just share a few, um, and I've I've changed their names to protect their privacy. Mary came to my office as she needed to move out from her property. She was living there in fear as her partner breached his AVO several times, and she was no longer able to live safely at that property. Amanda, in her late 50s, spoke to me at a community event, very distressed, talked talked about how her landlord was increasing her rent by $50 a week. Uh, She was trying to negotiate it, but wasn't hopeful. Uh, she was juggling a, a number of health issues and expenses and she was really worried that within weeks she would be homeless. Muhammad was a law student who came to me and said it was, you know, he's talking to me about how difficult it was to save for a deposit for a home. Um, his parents live overseas, so he couldn't live with them and save, which a lot of young people have to do. And he worked most evenings and weekends, but everything he earned went to rent, to bills, to university textbooks. He barely had enough for groceries, let alone savings. And he couldn't imagine himself being a homeowner into the future, even though um, he was studying a tertiary degree. Sarah and Ahmed told me recently uh, even with both of them working, nearly all of their income goes to childcare and rent. So they budget really tightly, they try not to eat out too much, they still feel it's impossible to have much left in terms of savings, and they do- also don't see themselves as ever owning a home. So for people like Mary, Ama- Amanda, Muhammad, Sarah, and Ahmed, my office and I, we've done our best as a, a local MP's mm-hmm. office to support them. We've organised some emergency solutions, we've pr- tried to facilitate support for them where we could, case by case. But it's actually reform and housing policies mm-hmm. at the national level and the state level that will change the system and make structural uh, adjustments and changes that will have long lasting benefit to millions of Australians just like them. When you look back to the fort between the 1940s and the 1970s, Um, home home ownership levels were just over 70% and that was really the era of the Australian dream. Yet census data from 2021 shows the proportion of people who own their own home is now dropped to 30% and rental stress is also worsening. So that rental stress where you have to spend over a third or 30% more of your gross income to rent. Around 1 million renters across the country live in homes that are also unsafe for their health but they are too afraid to speak up and request repairs in case they they might get evicted. Many young people are facing rent increase after rent increase, making it unaffordable to make ends meet, let alone save for a deposit. You've also got essential workers, nurses, aged care workers, early educators, police, AMBOs, those who work in hospitality who've been effectively priced out of the rental market as well as buying. These workers on average spend about two thirds of their income on rent. These are the same essential workers that helped us get through the pandemic. And and we, of course, have far too many Australians experiencing homelessness. As many of you know, single women over 55 are also particularly vulnerable to homelessness. These are often women who are more more likely to take on family or care responsibilities, worked in casual or part-time roles, and as a consequence have less or no super to fall back on. It is unacceptable that in this country, endowed with wealth and opportunity, that so many of our fellow Australians have nowhere to call home. It should be an inalienable human right for all Australians to have access to safe and affordable housing. But now more than ever in my lifetime, more than any other time, I see the problems caused by lack of quality affordable housing across this country. We know back in the 80s and 90s house prices were much lower, buyers would borrow less, save smaller deposits and spend less of their overall income on housing. As an example, 1984, a very good year, I was 11 years old. The average uh, home cost cost sixty four thousand. An average mortgage forty two thousand. An average the average I- annual income was nineteen thousand. Home ownership was realistic and it was in reach. That happened to be also the year my family moved out of our housing commission flat and bought a home, modest home that my parents had saved up over the past 10, 15 years for. It was within our reach, even though Dad worked for Australia Post and Mum was a kindergarten teacher. So. This has changed. Today, fast forward to 2023, the average home costs 920000 The average mortgage is 576000 The average salary is about 90000 You can see why people are struggling uh, to get into the market. Australian home buyers would now have to borrow 10 times their annual income. So these stats don't lie. You can clearly see how these increases would also impact mortgage repayments and, and add to mortgage stress as well. So while housing was important for my family as migrants uh, in the 80s, In Australia in 2023 it is an issue of national significance for all Australians and too many Australians are being hit by the rising cost of living, by rising rents, trapping them in a rental cycle for prolonged periods. There are also rising mortgage repayments that we know about and people are struggling to even get into the market as I've said and sadly and unacceptably too many are facing or experiencing homelessness and a lot of young people are giving up on the idea of home ownership. Some Uh, Studies show 70% of young people believe they will never own their own home. They struggle to save for a loan, not everyone can obviously live with their parents to save up enough uh, or ask mum and dad for a loan as well. The Australian dream is increasingly a dream that only the children of wealthy parents are able to entertain and these young people feel that home ownership is only possible potentially when their parents pass and they inherit their property or savings. That is just unacceptable but it's a reality. these are all some of the reasons. Let's not uh, this be a, a free pass, though, for the failures of the previous Liberal National Government. Here's where I'm going to get a bit political. I am a politician after all. Nine to ten years we saw an, uh, oversaw an increase in housing construction costs during the previous government, 46% over the last decade. Scott Morrison infamously said he didn't believe in a legacy. Well, he left a legacy of higher house prices, higher rents and greater housing stress, a legacy that has left many Australians unable to buy their own home. Now, how did we get to the point where so many young Australians have lost hope in the Australian dream? Well, in reality, it's happened over many decades, and there is no one villain. Not even Scott Morrison who's responsible for all of it. Um, the contribution there, but not all of it. The heart of this issue is this. Governments in Australia and around the world, frankly, have lost sight of the fundamental role of housing. They made decisions which incentivized property as an investment vehicle, And neglected housing as a fundamental right to ensure security and dignity for australians the taxation settings like the capital gains discount planning laws that restrict housing in what would be appropriate areas and a lack of government investment in public housing have all been contributing factors so we've ended up in 2023 in australia where capital is incentivized towards housing to the detriment actually of innovation and technology in our economy and with people's wages stagnant for Over a decade, a quality affordable house has become a pipe dream for many Australians and an income stream and tax haven for others. These policy settings are a symptom of a deeper ideological point. Every society makes decisions about the balance that needs to be struck between those who can afford to own property and those who can't. Now, in Australia, I would argue that we've we've entrenched the divide, creating favourable conditions for those buying two or three or more, even more houses, at the expense of the people who are consigned to being being their tenants. We need to reassert the importance of quality, affordable housing as a fundamental human right. We need to rebalance the scales. Now people, I still think people should be able to invest in housing, but more people must be able to access housing because it is a basic human right. It's no surprise I'm a social democrat. I know that an unfettered uh, capitalist market produces inevitable and intractable divides which can erode social cohesion. And as a social democrat, I believe it's the job of government to intervene to promote the rights of people who need protection, to regulate that market, to ensure fairness and balance for them. And right now, people who can't access basic affordable housing and, protect and need protecting, they need the fairness and a rebalancing to address their structural disadvantage. These factors are contributing to a national moment also of intergenerational unfairness. There's one generation of Australians who were lucky enough to buy housing, you know, before the 80s or in the 80s, access free university, access universal healthcare, all the great policies, by the way, of the Whitlam and Hawke and uh, uh, Keating governments, and they enjoyed a relatively cleaner planet. There's another generation of Australians who can't buy a house, are struggling to pay off their uni uni fees, are inheriting a planet that is warming to dangerous levels at alarming rates. So it's little wonder I hear so much frustration from all of them, from renters, from those looking to buy, from mortgage holders and those looking for public housing. In a time when some people have so many houses to their name, there are people that are struggling to simply put one roof over their heads. Again, as a social democrat, I actually believe and am interested in rebalancing the scales to find solutions that increase housing supply and decentivise property speculation on domestic dwellings. The key word here is rebalancing. Finding solutions that don't knock those scales over, because that would, that would cause much greater suffering. We actually need to find solutions that are effective and equitable. In the first year of the Labor Government, or the first 15 months of the Labor Government, the Federal Labor Government, housing has been front of mind both in terms of affordability and supply. And we've taken significant steps to rebalance the scale. Of course, you all know about the $10 billion Housing Australia Future Fund, the half, the single biggest investment in social and affordable housing by a federal government in more than a decade. And this is uh, set up to support the build of 30,000 social and affordable homes in its first five years, 4,000 homes allocated to women and children impacted by family and, and uh, domestic violence, as well as older women at risk of homelessness, helping people like Amanda, as well as 10,000 affordable homes allocated to frontline workers, all those essential workers that I was talking about. Now, of course, this still hasn't passed the Senate, and I'll come back to the politics of this in a moment. But we've also announced, in the first 15 months, 350 million over five years to build 10,000 affordable homes. That's an additional amount. Broadened the National Housing Infrastructure Facility, enabling up to 575 million to be invested in social and affordable rental homes. Supported built-to-rent accommodation, offering tenants flexible leasing terms, long-term rental security, and the opportunity to be part of a resident community. We've expanded funding for homelessness, 67 and to go to the states and territories. A help to buy scheme as well, which will assist 10,000 eligible Australians to buy a home with a smaller deposit, cutting the cost of buying a home up to 40%. Regional first buy a home, uh, home buyer guarantee as well, with a deposit uh, supporting people with a deposit as small as 5%. And we've expanded the home guarantee scheme eligibility, which basically allows friends, siblings, and other family members to jointly apply in addition to couples and single applicants, again helping more people get in the market. And we've extended the exemption of home sale proceeds for pension asset testing, encouraging older Australians to downsize and free up housing for younger people. The Prime Minister also announced a $2 billion social housing accelerator uh, to build thousands of new social homes across Australia. And we've delivered support for renters by uh, making the largest increase to Commonwealth rent assistance in over 30 years. That'll help over a million Australians who are renting and struggling with that rising cost. Now, just last week, the National Cabinet uh, met and announced a better deal for renters and a further boost to housing supply. They increased the National Housing Accord target of one million new homes to 1.2 million new homes, well-located homes uh, over five years to be built from starting from 1st of July, 2024. And the Prime Minister announced, the big announcement was the $3 billion uh, new homes bonus to go to states and territories. Um, that funding program, would help the states achieve over their accords targets. There was also a housing support program of 500 million to help kickstart housing supply as well. And with respect to renters, some of these standards that are so important that needed to be lifted, like a nationally consistent policy to require genuine and reasonable grounds for eviction, moving towards limiting rental increases to once a year and phasing in minimal rental standards. So all of these policies in 15 months, the HAF, the social housing accelerator, the bill to rent and so on, These are all steps that have been taken by a federal Labor government to increase the number of dwellings across the country, uh, an acknowledgement of the housing crisis. But the scales have been unbalanced for far too too heavily and for far too long. And I think the coalition, I I was critical of them for for being neglectful and having no action for for 10 years. Um, And I would say that our policies are a very good start. They're a great start, these measures. But let me address the half elephant in the room Uh, because it hasn't passed the Senate. It's a great start. And I said 10 years of neglect uh, by the Do Nothing Coalition, fine. But the start that we are attempting is also getting spiked by the the populist politics that have been exhibited by the Greens political party, who are blocking the half. What does it mean for Australians? We have a a once-in-a-generation opportunity to create a secure ongoing pipeline of funding for social and affordable housing over the long term, So I think the political grandstanding of the Greens standing in the way of the half. They say they support public housing, yet they proceed to block the half. What does that mean? They're blocking 30,000 new social and affordable homes to be built. They're blocking 30 million for housing and services for veterans experiencing homelessness. They're blocking 200 million for repair and maintenance of public housing. They're blocking 100 million for crisis and transitional housing for women and children experiencing domestic violence. As a result of the Greens political party blocking the half, each day that they block, 16 new homes are not being built. Each day that's 16 families in need that are going without new social housing. So unfortunately not all parts of the political system are focused on genuine outcomes. There's a fair bit of political game game playing. I think it's self-indulgent populism by the Greens political party Um, and they've argued that we haven't negotiated on the housing reforms. That's simply not true. They demanded a a two-year rent freeze. Now, we've had this debate about rent freezes for months. And interestingly, on Insiders, it was summarised by one of the journalists on there who said that the Greens stand for a policy no one supports, either on the left or the right, which experts have also said will make things worse. Indeed, for the most needy, it may well cause greater harm than is already being felt. We don't believe in rent freezes. It's not even constitutionally possible to do so. but instead, as a government, we're working on effective and equitable responses to rebalance the scales. The Greens have also asked for a direct annual spend of $2.5 billion. Now the Housing Minister amended the half to guarantee a $500 million minimum spend per year uh, for social and affordable housing. This floor could also be increased as we move forward in future years. So we have negotiated. But frankly, we will overcome, we'll have to overcome some of this political game playing Because we believe fundamentally as a government, and I know the Prime Minister believes this deep down as I do, that the inherent human right of housing is the centrepiece of this. And we will follow through to get things done as we need. But we know more more needs to be done. More ideas, more conversations like this one that go further in rebalancing the scale. So if you'll indulge me, I'm gonna put out a few potential reform ideas that might be discussed going forward. There's just a few, there's many these are just a few uh, given our time constraints. We could consider removing the capital gains tax discount for non-principal places of residence. So let me emphasise, this would be for, this would exclude the principal place of residence because no doubt the Liberals in discussing this would lose their minds. Probably a lot of property owners own 10 or 12 properties would lose their minds. There'll be a big scare campaign. But effectively this would raise billions of dollars that could be reinvested in housing. It also means capital and and investments can be allocated to more productive sectors, such as new technology and research and development. More beneficial to our economy, um, and and our economy would um, be much more efficient and productive than when people park their money in housing. Similarly, we could raise revenue by implementing a foreign buyer surcharge. Some of that's already been done, but we could assess that again. This would create revenue and reduce the incentive for investing in unproductive housing stock, because we want housing for Australians. We know the need is so dire. We could also look at implementing a tax uh, for short-term accommodation, the so-called Airbnb tax that people have discussed, and vacancy taxes. This reduces incentives for taking housing out out of the rental market, and the tax would be proportional to demand in locality, so $20 a night, for example, in Melbourne and Sydney, or $5 in Dubbo. Um, some of you might have seen the recent Age article about the regional uh, Victorian town of Bright. I don't know if you saw that. But basically, there were, it's a population of 2,500 people. 600 properties are on Airbnb. It's so bad that the local butcher couldn't find a place, the new local butcher could not have find a place to rent or live in, had to sleep in his car. Um, that's just not acceptable. Now, everyone acknowledges increasing supply is the main issue. Supply, supply, supply. That's what we've heard again and again. One of the best ways to increase supply is to take local planning decisions off councils. This might be a bit controversial. If you're a councillor, no councils here. Um, And give them to state governments. This would allow for residential zoning to build up and for prices to go down. So, yes, I'm a bit of a centralist. Uh, in suggesting states take over planning and zoning. It's a bit different than the centralism of the Whitlam area when we wanted to get rid of the state governments. Um, But nonetheless, I think it's an important step because... And this is the momentum we have now. The National Cabinet has also agreed to a National Planning uh, Reform Blueprint, which includes plans to improve housing supply and affordability. And importantly, the blueprint looks at standardising a national standard for undertaking planning, zoning, land releases and other reforms such as increasing density in order to meet the housing supply targets. So a couple of the things that can be done when you transfer those powers, you could look at increasing residential zoning along transport arterials, you know, three storey de facto within a 100 metre radius of all the major train lines and major roads and tram and bus and train stations. You could revisit, the states could revisit mandatory inclusion rezoning. This was raised by the Victorian government a number of years ago, where you looked at 10% of a building, say a 10-storey building, being set aside for those essential workers, for teachers, for AMBOs, for nurses and others, so they can actually live next to where they work and they're not having to schlep it, you know, two hours on the train and back from however far out they've had to find accommodation to get to the hospital or to the police station or wherever they work that's more central. Let me come quickly to renters' rights. Many renters are within their rights to make a complaint but they're often too afraid to do so for a number of reasons. There are laws already in place, but enforcement actually isn't working. And this is a state, largely a state responsibility. Civil penalties aren't well utilised. If you try and go through VCAT, the line, I mean, the, the, the wait is so long you'll be there forever. Impossible to get ahead of that. And then consumer affairs tends to be a toothless tiger in this respect as well. We need state regulators to adopt a more ACCC type approach and muscle up and protect renters. The other big issue I touched on was that renters are living in really rundown properties that are really energy inefficient. Landlords should be making upgrades, but it's usually not a priority. So, as a result, tenants get sky high utility bills that they struggle to pay. Renters are freezing during winter and boiling during summer. So, there's a number of ways to address this. You could have a very strong, a stronger regulatory approach, lift and strengthen the, the standards, make sure with strong enforcement, landlords meet those standards. You could look at subsidising uh, and upgrading rental appliances in, in rental properties or even subsidising things like improving home insulation as well. Obviously the latter has a significant cost attached to it um, and would be a bit problematic because you, you wouldn't want a landlord to get that subsidy and then on sell the property uh, after a year of renting it. So I, I prefer a very strong regulatory approach but that's just my view. Either way, improving energy efficiency standards decarbonises and helps tackle climate change. Now, the final uh, piece that I was going to talk, final sort of additional reform I was going to talk about today uh, and discuss was something I was going to call the Housing Australia Fund. Um, And this idea was going to be the centrepiece of this speech. It was the idea of having the federal government pay about $5 billion to the states to build new public and private housing stock. Well, the prime minister kind of stole the thunder of that and just announced three billion last week, and he announced the two billion for social housing a couple of months before that. So he kind of took my idea. In fact, <laughs> I shouldn't—I shouldn't have mentioned it to him a couple of months ago. I actually did talk to him about this and I said we need to do this. Um, I had it all prepared for this speech, Emma, but they've announced it at National Cabinet. I apologise. Um, yeah, it's a great reform because it gets the government, the federal government, back in the business of building housing as a way. Of to counter the need, the need to keep housing margins high. It creates supply, it reduces the power of developers to land and charge exorbitant development rates. Now, here's the bit that I can sort of add to this to push it even further. There is scope to make this investment ongoing, which was my original sort of thought on this. It could become actually budget neutral policy. I, I mentioned earlier the, the capital gains tax discount. That costs the budget around 4.7 billion a year. I'm, I'm not sure of the exact figures, but around, around there. And if you look at the revenue raised from a foreign surcharge or adjusting that percentage and and looking at tackling Airbnb, both revenue raises, it is possible, and both of those would be, and all of those combined would be significant revenue, it is possible to have an ongoing annual housing investment by the federal government that could be offset uh, by those revenue gains, make it budget neutral. Now, all these reforms, including those announced by the Prime Minister as well as the ideas that sort of I've thrown out here today, and there are many more other ideas I should say. There are things like superannuation being adjusted to allow institutional investors to invest in property. Uh, lots of different ideas. An idea around a national uh, innovation housing fund for research to fund research uh, on how to better build uh, cheaper and more effective and more energy efficient homes. There's lots of different ideas. Um, all of them are about rebalancing the scales and recognising the fundamental need of housing as a human right. will create. You can create revenue through closing the tax concessions, uh, properly taxing Airbnb uh, and fund construction of new housing. You can reform the planning system that will allow construction of more housing and in areas where people want and need to live. Reforming renters' rights will increase security of renting and supply through industry investment. All of the reforms are aimed at collectively uh, taking the heat out of the economy to a certain extent and reducing inflation because that is a big effect. If some of you have seen the study out of Minneapolis, where they uh, significantly reduced inflation in the way they went about it. I encourage you to have a look at that. Um, But they'll benefit all Australians and they'll help millions of people across the country. And it's about helping young people access quality and affordable housing and giving the older Australians, parents and others, you know, the comfort and the sense of comfort that their children can also live the Australian dream of their own house, not just parents who can currently afford to help buy their kids one. Now, the Liberals are going to argue and will argue that increasing supply, and they have argued this, will decrease the value of housing assets currently held by households. It's a scare campaign. Our measures have been sensible. they have been a sensible response. They'll retain the value of people's house homes and the bedrock of their int- retirement while still allowing younger Australians to, an opportunity to enjoy the same benefits of a quality, affordable house. And as I mentioned, there are parties like the Greens who want to knock down the scales and introduce rent freezes and block the half. No one wins by doing that. No houses are getting built because of that blockage. It's populous, it's impractical, and it'll do more harm than good. I've tried today to open up a bit of a conversation about how Australia can meet what I think is the the great 21st century challenge of ensuring quality, affordable housing for all Australians in the locations where people want to live, with decent infrastructure, in comfortable dwellings that recognise every Australian's right to the safety and security of a place to call home. For too long, governments have got it wrong. For too long, we've prioritised the investment portfolio over the first home buyer, the investment vehicle over the fundamental human right. We can make the system fairer, rebalance the scales, while still allowing those who've worked hard to secure their retirement and their family's prosperity to enjoy the fruits of their labour. It is this kind of possibility of tackling issues like this that made me want to enter politics. Uh, Emma mentioned my background in foreign policy and national security. But these go to the heart. Housing policy goes to the heart of why we do what we do. Because I actually understand, I'm not an expert in housing policy or even economics, but I understand the power of politics combined with good evidence-based policy to achieve lasting and substantive change for the better. Now, I'm acutely aware that there are many people, the second and third property owners are not necessarily rich people. There are a lot of people who've structured their finances uh, and they're heavily leveraged. Uh, They've played by the rules as they've been set up until this point in time, because bricks and mortar are an appealing and sensible investment option for people who've worked hard and done well, given those current settings. But frankly, it is a government's job to make the difficult decisions. If a society doesn't have enough hospitals Government's got to build more hospitals. If society doesn't have enough roads, you've got to build more roads. At the moment, Australia does not have enough homes to meet the needs of its population. It has an intergeneration fairness issue. So I think our job as a government is to make good decisions in the interest of the nation and to try and balance those competing interests, to rebalance the scales. So I've been in public housing, I've been a renter, and I've worked and saved hard to, to buy a first home uh, for my family. I've got a mortgage. But I think... I believe we can balance the competing interests here to increase housing supply and create a fairer and more equitable Australia. Thank you.